Amen, amen. Lord, we praise you. It is certainly true from beginning to end, all not only in history, but recorded in your scriptures for us. Christ is the story. His name is the glory seed, deserves the glory of all that takes place in human history. Lord, this salvation that we have all come to partake of through Christ is, uh, is, a, is just an amazing story that we see promised and foretold and foreshadowed all throughout your scriptures. And we thank you, Lord, because though we have your book, it is because only by your grace that you've shown and opened our eyes to this truth. None of us were clever enough to figure it out on our own, though it is perfectly clear for anyone to see. But it's because of our sin, Lord, that hindered us. We're dead in our trespasses and sins. But yet you, Lord, in your mercy, opened up our eyes to the light of the glory of grace in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Thank you, Father, for our salvation. Thank you for this, the hope that we have in Jesus. We pray, Lord, that you would show us more of Christ as we open up your book now, that you would increase in us our understanding of this wonderful plan that you, have, that you are fulfilling in our world throughout human history, a plan that centers upon your Son, Christ. And all the, and all the stories throughout the Bible point to Christ. And Lord, may all our stories, all our lives, the stories that you are writing in each one of us, point others to Christ as well. Lord, increase in us Christ. Help us to be more like Jesus. Help us understand more of his work of salvation, his role as a priest for us today. May your spirit teach us now and make this church, Chesa Bible, more of the church that you wish us to be, that you would equip us to do the work that you call us to do until you call us home. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated, brothers and sisters. If you have, as you're seated, uh, please take your Bibles and turn with me to Hebrews today. Hebrews chapter 8 is where we'll be looking at. Hebrews chapter 8, verses 1 through 13. And uh, it's uh, wonderful um, to have our guests with us this morning. Welcome to our guests as well. And if those of you that uh, are here, but you know, you... Um, You've, maybe you've missed some of our series in Hebrews, well then you're here for the perfect sermon because in this sermon we learned the main point of this letter of Hebrews. And so uh, it, uh, it, is a, um, a very, it is a rich, again just this whole section uh, is very rich theologically and uh, there's a lot of references to Old Testament uh, uh, truths and we pray that uh, the Spirit of God would, would teach us now. So Hebrews chapter 8, hopefully you're, you're there at this point, and we can look into the Word of God. Well, we have been working through our series through Hebrews, and if you call, last time we, we preached Hebrews chapter 7, verse 11 through 28. And in all of Hebrews chapter 7, which you just looked at, it, it was all about the significance of Jesus being a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. 
that Jesus Christ, the perfect Son of God, is not like the priests of the Levitical order. His priesthood is a different priesthood. His priesthood is a priesthood that is according to this order of Melchizedek, this relatively obscure guy found in Genesis 14, but yet was a type, a foreshadowing of who Christ would be. Jesus Christ not only would be the, a priest according to the order of Melchizedek, foreshadowed in, in Genesis 14, but would be, would be promised to be such a priest by David in Psalm 110. And so we saw all of this uh, last week. And near the end of the chapter, having seen the, the significance of Jesus as a priest according to the order of Melchizedek, at the end of the chapter, in verse 25, we read the, the very relevance for the recipients of Hebrews at that time. And the chapter 7, verse 25, reads this. Therefore, he, that is Jesus, is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. And this was an important, encouraging truth to the recipients of the letter of Hebrews because they were... Christians of Jewish background, of Jewish descent, and they were facing increasing, rising persecution for their faith in Jesus. Most likely, these were living in, in or near Rome, in Italy. And uh, in a little short while would be the, the persecution of, increasing persecution of Nero. And so, they, of course, as a result, because of this increased pressure, were being tempted to return to the relative and perceived safety of Judaism. They wanted to go back to the comfortable, in a sense, life as, uh, of and practicing the Old Testament law and, and, keep, and observing the, the temple worship. But these words, when because of Jesus is a priest according to the order of Melchizedek, and therefore he's able to save forever those who draw near to God through him. That, that, and because Why? Because he's always alive, always living at the right hand of God the Father to intercede for them. He's always there for you, always there to intercede. He's always looking out for you. He's always able to save you who, drew near, who draw near to God through him. And this was a truth, not only for them, but it's a truth for us and you and me today. We need to remember this truth. We need this truth because whenever trials in life uh, arise, sometimes we, in our weakness, can be tempted to fall away. We can be tempted to maybe even run away from Jesus. And when we are tempted in that way, it helps to remember the book of Hebrews. And particularly verse 25 reminds us that we can always recall that Jesus is our high priest, and he is alive at God's right hand, and he's there seated, able to save forever those who draw near to him. He is always there, living there, to make intercession for you and for me. Jesus is the greater high priest, and chapter 8 begins by simply recapping the main point of the letter. He's the high, great high priest that all believers have, more important than the uh, Levitical high priest. His high priesthood is unique and, and, and is sufficient for all who put their trust in him. In this chapter, the author further explores the ways that Jesus' priesthood is better. And we're going to look at today as an outline, simple two points, two ways 
that we have a better high priest in Jesus. Two ways that we have a better high priest in Jesus. And, uh, and hopefully uh, these uh, truths will encourage you to remember what kind of high priest you have. You have a greater high priest, a better high priest, a superior high priest. Greater than anything, particularly than compared to anything you would turn away to. And so number one, we're going to look at the first way that we have a better high priest in Jesus is that Jesus offers a, a better ministry. As a priest, all priests offer service. So that's what they would do. They offer a ministry. Jesus, as our high priest, offers a better ministry than all the Levitical priests taken together. And we read this in chapter 8, verses 1 through 6. We'll read all six verses, and then we'll explain uh, what it, the author is trying to communicate. Now, the main point in what has been said is this. We have such a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister in the sanctuary, and in the true tabernacle which the Lord pitched, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices, so it is necessary that this high priest also have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are those who offer the gifts according to the law who serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things, just as Moses was warned by God when he was about to erect the tabernacle. For see, he says, that you make all things according to the pattern which was shown you on the mountain. But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry by as much as he is also the mediator of a better covenant which has been enacted on better promises." See, this, this full, uh, this, uh, these six verses, just reading through quickly, you kind of just notice there at the end, uh, this repetition of better, better, more excellent. It's just this emphasis that Jesus is the better priest, the better uh, high priest, the better ministry. And uh, what we find here is that it's sort of like, if you remember, Hebrews is like a, a written sermon. It's a written a sermon. There's a lot of repetition. There's, there's an explanation of various texts that the author goes through, and like in a long sermon, sometimes happen, not with mine, I'm sure, but someone can sometimes lose the forest for the trees, right? You ever feel that way? Maybe last week? Yeah? Some of you? Okay. Uh, I I acknowledge that. Seven points was long. Okay. But sometimes we lose the forest for the trees, and so as a gifted and skilled preacher, we'll often at times, even in the middle of a sermon, we'll restate the main point. Kind of just say, hey, this is the main point. By the way, wake up, everybody. Here's the main point. And so that's what our author does here in verse 1. He says, the main point, by the way, in what has been said is this. As it to remind them, because it's been, it's been some deep theological stuff. It's not easy stuff to understand in Hebrews chapter, particularly Hebrews chapter 7. And that's what he does. Everything that has been said previously has been for the purpose of demonstrating this one main point. And this point that the author points out is that we have such a high priest. We have a great high priest. We have Jesus, our high priest. Jesus is a superior high priest. He's not in the order of, of, of Levi or, uh, or Aaron. He's in the order of Melchizedek. And since Melchizedek was, is greater than Abraham, as we saw in chapter 7, and therefore greater than Levi also, it is reflected in the, in the respective priesthoods that Jesus' priesthood is greater than the Levitical priesthood. He's the greater high priest. All this we saw in chapter 7 elaborated. But here in these verses, the author shows how our high priest, Jesus, 
has a better ministry than the Levitical priests. Everyone knows the ministry of the priests, just as you know the ministry of the pastor. Well, he's the guy that gets up there and preaches or teaches the word of God to us. He's the one who maybe will teach a Sunday school class. He's the one who, who uh, is going to give some counseling. You understand there's certain things that we do as pastors that in the service of the church. And there were certain things that, particularly from a Jewish mindset, they understood all that the service that the priests would do. And the priests had this very unique role is that they would offer sacrifices on behalf of the people. That was their service. You, you have sin. You are, you want, you're thankful to the Lord. You want to worship God. You come to the temple. You bring your sacrifice. But you can't offer it. You have to give it to me, the priest. And my service to you is I will offer it if I was the priest. I would offer it up to God on your behalf. That would be my job. And maybe to, uh, to teach you, make sure you follow the, the correct and appropriate uh, laws in doing so. But Jesus' ministry, his service, is greater than what those priests were doing. All throughout this, these uh, six verses, there was a, a priestly language describing their, their ministry, their, their service, uh, their offer, what they offer. All these are a description, uh, taken from the priestly language. And so that's what the author is trying to communicate here, that Jesus is offering a priestly service, a priestly ministry that is better than the ministry of the Levitical priests. And it begins, Jesus' better ministry begins with where he ministers from. Where he ministers from. Now, where do you find a priest? Where do you, where do you go get their service? You, you go to the temple, right? That's where you go. But in verse 1, we learn that you don't go to the temple to receive the service of Jesus. Where is he? Verse 1, we know that, he, uh, that we have such a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. This wording comes straight out of Psalm 110. Psalm 110. He is seated at the right hand of God. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make the nations your footstool. The high priest is the messianic king. It's the picture of him who is seated in heaven. And and the fact that he's seated in heaven as a priest, we don't understand. You're seated, kings sit down, but we don't normally think of priests as sitting down. So here's this priest who is seated, sitting at the right hand of God the Father. This is, first of all, it's a picture that, it's a reminder that he is also a king, because that he's seated at God's right hand. The Psalm 110 allusion is fulfillment of the, of the messianic king. But the fact that he's, as a priest, seated, also conveys to us that his work is finished. He doesn't have to get up and down. People who are serving the king are usually standing so they can be sent here and there, anywhere, to serve whatever the, the whim of the king. But Jesus is seated at the right hand of God the Father as our high priest, and he's waiting upon the Lord until he will make his, his enemies a footstool for him. If in contrast to this priest, our great, our such a great priest in Jesus, the Levitical priests, they never sat down. They always stood Hebrews 10.11 says, every priest stands daily ministering. They don't go into the holy, most holy place and just kind of sit down and just, hmm, let me just chill here with the, the showbread. You know, they're going to sit down and go, oh, I'm going to time, let's get a little stool here and sit down here by the, uh, as I light the incense. They, they don't do that. They are always standing. That's their job because their work is not done. But Jesus, in contrast, 
there are such a, high, such a great priest seated. For why? Because his work of salvation is completed. We know this. He offered himself once for all. It was finished, as he said, on the cross. For you, brothers and sisters, you and I, many know, I hope you know this, what you and I need for our salvation, what you and I need to assure that you and I are saved, whatever that, what, all that is needed is done. It's done. D-O-N-E, done. You don't have to do anything to earn your salvation. If you're under that illusion, you have to do something to earn your salvation, you are, you are mistaken in that. For what is needed for your salvation and our, all our salvation is done by Christ on the cross when he died for our sins. And when you received his gift of salvation through faith, you receive that salvation forevermore. There's nothing more to do to be saved. Now, having said that Jesus is done and he's seated at the right hand of God, it doesn't mean that he's not doing anything. As we just read earlier, he's our high priest who is always there, able to save us forever, always ready to make intercession for you and me. He intercedes for us. We talked about this in, our, in, in chapter 7. But in verses 2 to 5, so we move on, moving on, when it begins with where he ministers in heaven. But in the bulk of this passage, verses 2 to 5, we learn that Jesus' better ministry, in contrast to the Levitical priest's ministry, is that his ministry, Jesus' ministry, is the real ministry. It's a real ministry. Whereas Levitical priests served in the temple, and before that, the tabernacle, Jesus serves or ministers in that which is this, the sanctuary, the real sanctuary. The temple and tabernacle, you would, where those are known as the holy, uh, in that temple and tabernacle was a place called the holy place. That's the word that's translated as sanctuary here. And we know that every day, priests could go into the holy place where they would light incense and things like that, then do their service. And that, would, that was probably the, the height of a priest's service. You even think about, for uh, it was just, I just read recently about Zechariah being chosen by Lot to go into, uh, to, into the holy place. It was a special kind of opportunity for priests. There were so many priests, that, you know, they couldn't just do it every day. They'd be a different guy in the morning and a different person in the evening. But to be chosen, was a, that was a special privilege. That holy place is where every priest could, would long to go for, to go to. But Jesus, as our great high priest, doesn't, does, not, does not serve in that, partic- in that particular sanctuary, that holy place. Jesus, he doesn't serve in the earthly temple. He serves in the true temple or the true tabernacle. He serves in one that is not made by human hands. It's, it's, it's that which the Lord pitched, not man. He's in a, in a sanctuary, a tabernacle that's true, that's real. That's not something that's built by man. So that excludes the temple, excludes the, the tabernacle. It's referring to something that's spiritual, something that's eternal. Hebrews 9.24 uh, well, later on, we'll also refer to the same concept. For Christ did not enter a holy place, that's the same word, sanctuary, made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. 
A profound truth is, is taught here as well as in our reference. And that is this, that the Jewish temple, the, the Jewish tabernacle before it, and all the worship that would take place, all that was, all the laws, all the rules and regulations, all the rituals that they would have to follow, all of it, as great as it was, as it was received from the Lord God himself, all of it, according to Hebrews here, is telling us that those are all a shadow and a copy of that which is real. God's true sanctuary, God's true tabernacle. Where does he truly dwell? Not in any human building. He, when David wanted to build, he said, no, I don't need, do I, I'm God, I don't need any building to be built. I can dwell in it. He doesn't need to. He only accommodated for us to allow us to see a shadow, a, a copy of what is true in heaven. He dwells in heaven. The earthly temple is not the real temple. It is a temporal building that points, rather, to the real temple, the real dwelling place in heaven where God is. At the end of verse 5, you notice that the author quotes even Exodus 25, 40. He says, remember when Moses was warned by God as he was building the tabernacle, he says, see that you make all things according to the pattern which was shown you on the mountain. And that's on Mount Sinai. So apparently Moses was, was shown some pattern, some, some uh, image of, the, of what was in heaven that he would then build, make sure that he would build in, as a copy or a shadowing, as a pattern to follow in building the tabernacle himself. All that we see in the tabernacle and later in the temple, all the different, and Exodus 25, by the way, is in the context of all those different pieces of furniture that are in the temple and the holy place and the most holy place. All those things, you know, the, the altar, uh, the, uh, the incense, the, uh, the, uh, the, the sh- table of showbread, the, uh, the, the menorah, the, can- the, light, the candlelight, all those things. And even if you go further into the holy, holy place, the Ark of the Covenant, the, the uh, mercy seat, even the veil, all of it in some way points to reality in heaven. Now, we may, sometimes we hear, hear uh, in the scriptures explicit what they may mean, but according, if we take Hebrews for what it says, all of that is somehow a copy, a foreshadow, or a picture of what is real in heaven. And this is profound because when the readers were tempted to leave Christ to return back to temple worship, they were, in essence, leaving the real thing to serve the copy. It was like leaving, you know, leaving, the, leaving your child behind at Disneyland and walking away with a, with a photo of it, of him or her. And it's like that. It's like, oh, the copy's good enough. In fact, it's, I think it's better. <laughs> Some days. No, <laughs> no, not really. All day. Oh, never. No. It'd be like, how many of us would choose to have a, a picture of our spouse instead of getting to be with our spouse? Absolutely not. I'd rather be with the real thing, wouldn't you? And that's what these Israelites were being taught here, that 
in the great high priest and his ministry. It's, the, it's a real ministry because he serves in the real tabernacle. He has access to the real dwelling place of God. These earthly priests, they're just access, they have access to, the, to a, a copy of what is real. They serve a purpose for a time. But now that the real has come, that which is temporal, that which is foreshadowing, is no longer necessary. The Jewish people, of course, they, they, felt their, they felt great pride in their temple. They were a uniquely called nation, and they are blessed to this day. They have, were given the temple, the, the law, their, their priesthood, their sacrifices, their rituals. And yet all the, no matter how, as great as it were, were a foreshadowing, a shadow of Jesus Christ. And when Jesus came, he fulfilled the law. He fulfilled the temple and the sacrifices and the rituals and the priesthood. For he offered himself once for all and sat down at the right hand of the Father in heaven. Jesus is that which is real. He offers a real the real ministry. Looking back at verse 3, even in the chapter 8 here, the author alludes to this, this, the, the priestly sacrifices that the priest would make. But and just like Levitical priests, Jesus too would offer up sacrifices. He has something to offer as well. The author goes on further to say that if Jesus actually were on earth, he would not be able to be a, a Levitical priest because the law limits priests to the descendants of Levi, descendants of Aaron. But nevertheless, Jesus does offer something as a high priest, as in his ministry. He has to offer something. We've already read about it briefly in, back in chapter 7, verse 27. He offered himself. He didn't offer a lamb. He didn't offer a goat. He didn't offer two turtle doves. It was not even like Abraham just offering up his son. I was just so really overwhelmed by that thought uh, as we were singing it early today. How great is his love. Jesus offered himself as a sacrifice. This would be a later, a more close examine in chapter 9 and 10 of Hebrews. But by rising from the dead after, and entering through the veil of heaven to God's right hand, Jesus' presence there is a constant testimony to his offering for our sin. And anyone who believes in him has the hope of knowing that our sins are forgiven and we, are, we have the hope of eternal life, a hope of salvation through him because he is at the right hand of God the Father. He's in the real temple, having offered the real sacrifice himself once for all. And verse 6 of chapter 8 wraps up this, this section that Jesus has obtained, uh, now has obtained a more excellent ministry. Talked about the ministries. He's a, a, the beginning is a book in here. Chapter, verse 2 was, talks about him being a, a minister in the sanctuary. Now it talks about the ministry. He has obtained a more excellent ministry. He's a, obtained a better ministry. He has a better ministry than the Levitical priest because, why? Because he is a medi- also the mediator of a better covenant which has been enacted on better promises. We've seen kind of allusions to this earlier also. The old covenant promised, if you remember, um, and the Mosaic covenant promised blessings for obedience, and then promised curses for disobedience upon Israel. 
And though it promised that, it, the old covenant did not make any way possible for the Israelites to actually obey the law. The law further, further served basically to show them how they needed to be holy, but it didn't because they didn't have any, any uh, their hearts were not changed, they all kept falling short of God's holy standard. And they only saw the, how they were guilty and guilty. And that's why they had to keep offering sacrifice and sacrifice and sacrifice for them, for themselves. The old covenant at best provided a temporary covering for their sins. It never perfected anyone. And so, therefore, a new covenant had to be made which Jesus is the mediator of, this better covenant, a new covenant. And this leads into the second way that we have a better high priest in Jesus. Jesus offers a a better ministry as our high priest, but he also offers a better covenant, a better covenant in verses 7 through 13. Besides the words in verse 7 and 13, the bulk of this section, you'll notice, is, is all quotes. It's an Old Testament quote. It is direct quote from Jeremiah chapter 31. It is, according to the scholars out there, this is the longest Old Testament quote in the New Testament. It's the longest Old Testament quote in the New Testament. So it kind of stands out for that reason. But it is, a, of all the quotes they could quote, one of the best, because it quotes for us the new covenant promise. Let's read verse 7 through 13 together then. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion sought for a second. For finding fault with them, he says, Behold, days are coming, says the Lord, when I will effect a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand, to lead them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, And I do not care for them, says the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds, and I will write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. They shall not teach everyone his fellow citizen and everyone his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all will know me. From the least to the greatest of them, for I will be merciful to their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. When he said, a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. But whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to disappear. The author here makes his point that if the old covenant had been perfect, there would have been no need for a second covenant. But there in Jeremiah chapter 31, in the, in the era where Israel was still under the old covenant law, we find a promise of a new covenant from God to Israel. In chapter, Jeremiah chapter 31 is one of the key chapters on the new covenant in the Old Testament, perhaps even the whole Bible. Um, but it is a key passage. It's one of those first places. Ezekiel is another, has another key reference to the new covenant. But Jeremiah 31 is, is one of the significant ones. And I always, try to remember, I always remember that it's there because it's, I think, of Jeremiah 31, 31. That's where it kind of starts. It's just a duplicate a verse for you uh, if you're ever going to get ordained and need to remember that. But um, the context of Jeremiah, if you remember, at this point, Jeremiah 31, is uh, Prophet Jeremiah is ministering in the southern kingdom. 
And it is in the context of his ministry that King Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian king, comes and conquers Jerusalem, conquers Judah. Uh, the northern kingdom had been taken captivity a while back. But the southern kingdom stood st- was still standing. But at this point, in the middle of Jeremiah, Nebuchadnezzar comes in, conquers Jerusalem, and takes a whole host of people captive and enslaved to captivity in Babylon. So in this time of great destruction, many people would have died. There was, great, there was war. Uh, there would have been much hunger because a lot of people, especially the uh, Nebuchadnezzar just didn't take the, the poor people. He took the, the, the wealthy. He took the people that he thought he could use, the skilled people that he would use to, to, you know, to further serve him in his kingdom. And God had allowed Nebuchadnezzar to destroy Judah because they were in they were in constant unrepentant rebellion of against God. They refused to follow His ways, and so God judged them. But even in their despair, God shows them mercy. For in Jeremiah uh, chapter thirty and following through thirty thirty one thirty two, there's this promise of a hope for for uh, Israel. And in the very middle of this. The section is Jeremiah 31, is this promise of a, of a new covenant. God comforts his people with that one day he would bring them back to the land, but more importantly, not bring them back to the land. And if he just brought them back, then what use is that if they would continue in sin? He's promised them a new covenant which would transform them. This covenant would, as we'll look at it, will make several promises that will stand out for the Israelites. First of all, we see in this new covenant that God promises to them a new heart. He says a new heart. He's going to... For this is the covenant that I will make, verse 10, with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws into their minds. I will write them on their hearts. This is... a profound kind of a very uh, a picturesque uh, description. God says he's going to put his law in their minds, but he says, I'm going to write it on their hearts. That's, that's this new covenant picture. If you remember with the old covenant, what was it written on? It was on, written on tablets of stone, right? Tablets of stone, maybe later on copied to parchments of leather, etc., so that they could be passed on from generation to generation. But those, no matter what the law was written on, even when they tried to follow God's instructions and try to put it on the doorposts of their house or put it on their, their hands or put it on their foreheads, as they did, no matter what they did, the law of God, the old covenant, was always external. It was always something outside of them. It was never in here. It was always out, external to them. And so it wouldn't change them and transform them. But God promises in this new covenant, he says, I'm going to put my law in your minds, in your hearts. I'm going to write it on there so that you, you're not going to be able to forget it. You're going to be able to follow it. You're going to be able to keep and, and obey it. They would be able to, through the Spirit's regeneration, have a, have a soul that would be able to obey and follow God's law, to be able to believe in, in what God says. For God would write his law on their hearts so that it would be internal and that could, therefore they could obey God's word. Secondly, God promises to Israel a new relationship. I will be their God, this is the latter part of verse 10, and they shall be my people. 
all throughout the Old Test, Old Covenant, yes, they were God's chosen people. Yes, that is true. Yes, they, they would uh, call, they, everyone would know that their God was, was the Yahweh God. And, and that was the recognition. But everything that the Old Covenant and the practices and the rituals, the things that they would follow would always remind them how set apart from God they are. Although whenever they see the law, none of them could keep it. It always keep them apart from God. Whenever the, we read about God's presence, wherever he was, no one was allowed to approach that. Only one guy could do it, and he would only do it once a year in only an appropriate manner. Wherever we see in the Old Covenant, we see this constant reminder to Israel that they were distant from God. Though they, had a, a, you know, they, they were his people, and he was their God in that sense, but they were not near to him. But in Christ, in the New Covenant, there would be a new relationship so that they would be closer to him than ever before. They could draw near to him with confidence, as we've seen. They would have a new and eternal relationship with their creator they would be, where they would be able to access him anytime. They could approach his throne and cry out to him. They would never have to be fear. They would have to fear to be that they would be rejected or exiled or removed from God's presence because they have this new covenant promise. Thirdly, God promises them a new knowledge, a new kind of knowledge. Uh, Verse 11, they shall not teach everyone his fellow citizen and everyone his brother, saying, know the Lord, for all will know me, from the least to the greatest of them. Israel if you remember, given the law, as soon as you read the law in Deuteronomy 6, they're told to, you love the Lord God, you need to pass on the law. You need to instruct the law, pass it on to your children, wherever you go, wherever you're doing, teach it to your, your children, the next generation. You're to teach them because people don't know God's law. But one day in the new covenant, God promises a new knowledge of the Lord, whereas Israel will no longer have to teach anyone, any of their neighbors, any of their brothers, any of their fellow saints, for all Israel will know the Lord. Throughout the old covenant, yes, we know that Israel would be called God's people, and many would have said they believed. But as we learned even from Numbers, though many would have said they believed, when it came to it, they did not know the Lord. They did not obey him. They did not follow him. But in the new covenant one day, all Israel will know the Lord. They will all come to a saving knowledge of Christ and, through God the, through, and have access to God the Father through the Savior. As uh, elsewhere it said, all Israel will one day be saved. They will all know God. That's an amazing truth. Not right now, even today, around the world, you, you, you most likely you meet a Jewish person, most likely they're not a believer in Jesus Christ. They're not. It's the rare, uh, rare uh, Messianic Jew that you may meet in our world today. But one day, all, all Israel will be saved. And that's, uh, that is a promise of of the new covenant. Fourthly, God promised Israel a new mercy. And this is perhaps the most uh, wonderful of all. The Lord will forgive their iniquities. Uh, Verse 12, For I will be merciful to their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. The limit of the old covenant was that, at best, their sins would be covered temporarily. And then their sins would have to be offered again, and again, and again. 
yearly, daily, monthly, as needed. Israel's priests always stood standing because they always had work to do. But with the new covenant promises, God says that he will forgive, he will be merciful to their iniquities. He will, essentially forgive their sins. He will remember their sins no more, even as we sung, as far as the east is from the west, so far he will remove his sins from us. And he will forgive and he will forget. I will remember their sins no more. God, the omniscient God, will remember it no more. It's not like he doesn't know it. He's all-knowing, but he will remember. He will forget it. He will not hold it against us or not hold it against Israel. This is a forgiveness that very few of us understand. Most of us don't. All of us probably don't. Because it's easy. We can say we forgive, but for most of us, we, we can't forget. It's hard to forget. Uh, most of us, when we're hurt, uh, we, we will, you know, hopefully we'll go through the right way. We'll, we'll, you know, we'll, ask, we'll tell someone why we were hurt and, and maybe explain to them what they did that was hurtful to us. And hopefully there was a, there's an apology there. We'd like to talk about it. We'll talk it through. But even if that's resolved, sometimes what we do in our sinfulness is that we tend to hold, hold on to it. We kind of just tuck it away in the back of our minds. And then when that person does it again, ah, oh, uh-huh, you know. You're not sincere the first time, you know, and then they do it again. And you kind of, kind of remember these things, and so we we may grow embittered. We hold it against them because they've sinned to us. They sinned against us sixty nine times seven, and I'm not going to forgive you one more time. We actually counted. No, that, that's us, but God forgives in a way that he will remember our sins no more. He says, Israel to Israel, he's not going to hold a grudge. He's not going to be bitter towards Israel. God forgives and God forgets. And this, these are the promises in the new covenant that God makes to Israel. Now, what's, this is the, if we look at the text carefully, He's this covenant promise is a covenant that is made to Israel specifically. Verse, go back to verse 8. Days are coming, says Lord, when I will effect a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah. And most of us here are not of the house of Israel, nor of the house of Judah. And yet, we, we, we somehow think that these things apply to us. How is that possible? First of all, we need to be fair. We need to uh, examine the scriptures for what it says. This is a new covenant is a promise to Israel. It is a promise to Judah. It is not a promise to us that are, that are Gentiles. But you, nevertheless, this promise extends to those of us who are Gentiles. Why? Because if you remember, the promise that God makes to Israel was his, is to bless them. And this new covenant is a way of blessing them. And when he promises to bless them, what is the result? So that they will bless the families of the earth. That, brothers and sisters, is why you and I, as non-Israelites, get to partake of this new covenant. 
We get these promises. We have our hearts transformed. We have a relationship with God. We have a knowledge of the Lord. We have forgiveness from God because of God's blessing to Israel and through the blessings of Israel in Christ, that is, particularly, that you and I as Gentiles also receive the new covenant promises. We're, we are the wild olive branch that has been grafted into the, uh, the, the tree. We've received the blessings. But nevertheless, having, so, having experienced it does not mean that God has forgotten his promise to Israel. This is, a, first and foremost, a promise to Israel. is written to, Israel, uh, to Christians of Israel, Jewish background. And he wants them to know that his promises to them are going to take place. This is going to happen. Even though it has not yet happened, this is a, a promise of a future event for Israel where one day all of them will be saved. All of them will know the Lord. All of them will know his forgiveness. All of them will have that nearness of relationship with God. And this, and this relationship is all made possible because of Jesus Christ. Our high priest, and it was ratified, this, who ratified this covenant by his blood. And as he reminds us every month in communion, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, right? That's why we take it every month. Reminded that this, this cup reminds us that Jesus shed his blood as a, to ratify to bring about the, the enactment of this new covenant promises. In, with Christ's death on the cross, the new covenant was brought into full effect. And, we would read elsewhere in Hebrews, later on in Hebrews 10, 19-22, these words... Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil, that is his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. We have, brothers and sisters, this freedom, this privilege to draw near to the Lord with full assurance of faith, in the midst of trials and uh, dangers and persecutions, because we, have, we are able to access God's throne through a new and living way, through the blood of Jesus that was shed so that the new covenant promises and the new covenant blessings to Israel would be extended, could, would be experienced by you and me who believe in Christ. And that's why, because of this new covenant, the old covenant by necessity, is no longer needed. As verse 13 says, it's, it's obsolete. Whatever is becoming obsolete is growing old, and growing old is ready to disappear. It's really interesting here at the, this writing. This is probably written around uh, early 60s AD, right? Before the major persecution of Nero in Rome, and right before the eventual, inevitable destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in AD 70. So these people, because there's still a temple for these people to be tempted to go back to. If the temple was destroyed, these people wouldn't be tempted to go back to temple worship. But the author of Hebrews is telling them, don't go back to the old covenant because that's obsolete and it's growing old. And in fact, 
it's going to go away really soon. And so, brothers, sisters, we'll wrap up here. We have such a high priest in Jesus Christ. That's the main point. We have a great high, greater high priest in Christ. He offers to us a better ministry and a better covenant by which we are saved and by which we can continually draw near to God. He will never cast you out for those of you who have trusted in Jesus. When trials come, persecutions arise, don't fight, don't run away, don't hide, don't resist the temptation to run away from Christ and instead draw near with confidence. When you're hurt, you, you can confidently go, and this is, it's, it's like a, you know, it's like parenthood. <laughs> when your children are hurt, when they, something happens to them, <laughs> you know, when they're around, what will they do? They get hurt. They, they, generally, my children don't just go run away and hide. They don't go run away from daddy or mommy when they get hurt. What do they do instead? They run directly to mommy or daddy. Maybe one more than the other. And that's how you and I, as the children of God, those who are recipients of the new covenant, we should run to the Father with confidence because he has saved us. He's shown us his mercy. He's shown us a greater love than our parents could ever show us in Christ Jesus, our priest and our king, our Lord Jesus. As you uh, spend some time this week reflecting upon this message, perhaps you, can, you might consider these three questions. As you consider your Christian life, are you desiring that which is real and eternal versus that which is a copy and temporal? And what aspect of the New Covenant most encourages you at this point in your walk? So we talked about several of those things. Maybe something, think about what encourages you. And then thirdly, how confident are you that you will enter the holy place of heaven? How confident are you that? And what is the base of your confidence? And I'll tell you the answer is, if you're not sure, the answer is that you, our confidence is based upon Jesus Christ the Son of God. Let's close in prayer. Father in heaven, thank you for your word and your truths. Thank you for the hope that we have in Christ, our great, our priest and our king. And we pray that you would, uh, that we would, in a response to the greater ministry and the, and the greater covenant that Jesus Christ offers us, that we would confidently always draw near to you in the midst of trials and tribulations because we have such a great priest in our Lord Jesus. In his name we pray, amen.